Can we totally dethrone its power from our lives so that all of our work is devoted to God and God's ways? As Christians, I don't think you can blame it on some evil Hollywood agenda. I think we've abandoned the playing field. The spirit of David and the cracks of the walls and the schemes that we are all running. Is you've got to make sure that your identity is solidly rooted in who you are in Christ and not in having money. If we were to have a business, what would we do with the money? You can only sleep in one bed. Woke up terrified in the middle of the night. We stole my whole house, was shaken. We have been put here on earth to create, not to mimic what might have happened historically. For me, as I pitch, I'm not looking just for the yes, I'm looking for my partners. But I tried Where my heart is most encouraged as a pastor is when I see generosity as the overflow of someone's intimacy with Jesus. And there's a lot of people who want to use their influence to change the world. So how do you actually do it? Investing can be complicated, but it doesn't need to be a burden. Stewardship of the resources that God has entrusted us with is full of responsibility, analysis, and yet it is also a unique opportunity for us all to come to know God's love for us more and His purposes in the world as we seek His wisdom. Here is a place to find other investors who seek the same answers you do and share their stories of seeking to know the best investor and giver of all time. Come for the podcast, stay for the community. Welcome to Faith Driven Investing. That's right, everyone. You're right where you should be here on the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. Thanks for joining us once again. Our guest today is Richard Okello. Richard is a co-founder and partner at Sango Capital. Sango is a premier partner for global institutional investors looking for attractive, risk-adjusted, and impactful returns in Africa. Prior to that, he was a principal at McKenna Capital, a large private endowment which invested over $15 billion into over 300 funds. Richard also worked with Ray Dalio as a partner at Burr Associates. That's a $150 billion global hedge fund. Today, he's joining us to share his story and his insights about the investment landscape and the rising opportunities in Africa. Let's join in. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. This is an episode that I've been really looking forward to recording for a long time. God has done something in my heart as I look to steward the capital he has entrusted me with in Africa. Some of you may know part of my story in that after an entrepreneurial background, we started Sovereign's Capital and we did not start investing in Africa. We invested in the United States and then Southeast Asia. We have an office in Jakarta and through the grace of God, that's worked out really well. But I guess it was probably three years ago that I went on a trip that was half adventure, half safaris, and then half service with my family and another family. And it had been since 1985, since I've been to East Africa, and Nairobi had completely changed. And I was astounded by the extent and the scope of economic progress in that time. And I looked all around me and it was business and there's the marketplace and it was booming. And yes, there are food stalls and some of the things that you might see in developing economies, but there are some big high rises and there are lots of people dressed up as if they just came out of Wall Street. And I was like, oh my goodness, here's an economic powerhouse. And somehow I've missed it. I wonder what the faith-driven entrepreneur scene is like here. I wonder what the faith-driven investor scene is like here. And so I got a great opportunity to go back a couple of times. We did a couple of faith-driven entrepreneur events and then a great trip 
to Nairobi to talk to local faith-driven investors to talk about what they are seeing and what they're investing in. And that began this quest of mine to figure out how to deploy capital there and how to do it well. What does it look like to be invited in? And who is doing it? Who is doing it well? That question for me, that theme, that concept was furthered last year during the Faith Driven Investor Conference when we had Finney Coravilla talk in what I thought may have been, there's so many great talks in last year's conference, but Finney's talk about Christopher Columbus really, really resonated with me. And I'm going to paraphrase it a bit here. And he said, effectively, you got to know that Columbus was an Italian. And when he went to get venture capital for his endeavors, he went first to Italy and it didn't work out. And then he went to Portugal, also didn't work out. He went to Spain, it did. That's why they speak Spanish in Ecuador, in Chile, in Peru, and all over Latin America. And then he went on to say, do you know that in Africa, over the next 20 years, there will be more entrance into the job marketplace in Sub-Saharan Africa than either India or China? It's a young population. It is one with a lot of economic vibrancy. And Finney effectively posed this question to us. What language are they going to be speaking in Africa? Are they going to be speaking the language of looking to bring God glory through all that they do, through the restoration and redemption of the products and services they make, through the way that they love their neighbor? Are they going to be doing excellence and bearing witness to God? Or are they just going to be worshiping mammon? And that was a great question. I think that so much of any type of market development comes from who the investors are. And we've seen that over and over again in society. And we've seen when Christians step up as the Moravians did in Suriname and so many others did in Africa in the 1800s. And we have this opportunity to do the same now in Africa. Now, I don't know what kind of image is conjured up when I talk about Africa. You might be thinking of a safari trip and the snows of Mount Kilimanjaro. You might be thinking of starving folks in Ethiopia. I don't know what that looks like. But I'll tell you that my picture was completely redefined through that trip that I took three years ago and why I'm really excited about a trip that we are having to Nairobi and to South Africa coming up this fall. But my hope is that during this time, in this next 30 minutes or so, with an interview with Richard O'Kella at Sango Capital, that you will have a more nuanced, a more textured, a more up-to-date, a more real vision of Africa and its potential and its impact and potential for societal change and what that means to you as an investor. So Without further ado, I want to welcome Richard Akello to the podcast. Richard's become a friend and somebody who's been a great encouragement to me as I've been able to track with Sango Capital now over more than a year. Richard, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's very excited to be here, Ken. It's awesome to have you on the program. It's awesome to be a financial partner with you, which I should probably mention in full disclosure, our family office has invested in Richard and, and you need to know that. But we will be featuring many, as we have before, we'll be featuring many other guests, and not all of them will be ones that we invest in, but all of them will be ones that'll give you a sense as to what's going on and what God is doing in the marketplace there. Richard, as we get started, can you tell us a bit about your background, who you are, where you come from? One of the things, of course, that's made such an impact on me is to see this heart that you have for Africa, and then also some very real investment experience and formation in the United States as well. Bring us through who you are and how you've gotten to where you are now. Thank you, Henry. So my story could be very long and I get very passionate about it. Uh, but if I was to summarize it in four words, I would say it is the providence of God. Literally, it is the providence of God. And so I'm going to run you through some of those snippets and you start to draw a thread. So I grew up in Uganda. 
at a very interesting time in Uganda's history. Uh, I was born halfway through Idi Amin's reign. Idi Amin was sort of the worst president that Uganda had. Most people would sort of agree with that. Most people know who he was. And then I lived through the early parts of seeing the country transition to some of its best times. Okay. Went to school there. I was fortunate to get a scholarship to complete high school in Wales, in the UK. And then I got another scholarship to go to Swarthmore College in the US. That scholarship happened at the time I thought it was very accidental, but as you'll see, it wasn't because the then Dean of Admissions of Swarthmore just so happened to visit Wales that year. He just so happened to come to that school for the first time. I just so happened to run into him in the hallways thinking he was lost. We had a great conversation and he said to me, you got to apply to Swarthmore. Okay. And I applied Swarthmore. I got in, could not get enough financial aid, could not afford to go there, was just about to decide to go elsewhere. And then I got a call from Swarthmore saying, hey, we're sorry to let you know that dean of admissions had a heart attack and passed away while he was hiking. This was a, you know, 40 some odd year old guy, right? So now I thought to myself, well, now I got to go to Swarthmore. I got to figure out a way to go to Swarthmore. So anyway, eventually made it to Swarthmore, completed Swarthmore in three years. And the year that I graduated was the first year that Bridgewater Associates decided to recruit from Swarthmore in five years. Okay. So I interviewed with Bridgewater, don't get an offer. And two days before I'm due to take another offer, Bridgewater calls me and says, hey, we'd like you to come in, meet the team, want to make an offer. And I almost say no, right? Because it's, you know, two days before my other offer, right? So anyway, get down to Bridgewater, meet Ray Dalio for the first time. What a phenomenal meeting. Get sold on Bridgewater, decide to join. And then of course, part of the rest of that is history. You know, the farm grows incredibly quickly, doubled every year that I was there. I was fortunate enough to become a partner there five years in. And as you can see at this point, I've used the term fortunate enough, fortunate enough, enough that you start to see that this is really not just being fortunate, right? This is about the guided providence of God at each time along the way. So anyway, so fast forward, nine years at Bridgewater, went to work for a new farm because at the time I felt a nudge that that was the time to leave, go over from the public side of investing to the private side of investing. So Bridgewater was all public markets, equities, bonds, currencies, et cetera, went over to McKenna Capital, which was just getting started. Lots of people at Bridgewater thought that was crazy to do, did not make sense to them. Lots of things we do when... <laughs> guided by the providence of God, yeah. actually do seem crazy at the inception, right? But we went anyway, and McKenna was a great story, five and a half years there, tremendous experience investing in private equity, real estate, other just other investments. And that is where the seed of Sango Capital, which is my current venture, started. We started investing in Africa while we were there, and eventually felt the nudge again to leave McKenna and come set up Sango. So that was about eight to nine years ago. And here we are. We've been investing here for quite a while now. We're up to about half a billion dollars in assets. We've attracted some really interesting investors who, who had never been to Africa, physically or invested in Africa. And again, to sum that up, that is, in four words, the providence of God. So when you talk about investing in Africa, you are in Africa now. So at some point in time, you said, in order for me to be a really good investor in Africa, of course, I need to be there and on the ground. And so you didn't move back to Uganda. You're in South Africa, correct? Yeah. Tell us about that transition. I'm just, you're at the top of your game and you're on Wall Street. And for those of you who don't know Ray Dalio, Ray Dalio is like the investment guru, for lack of a better word. Been remarkably successful. Bridgewater, one of the most successful firms in the history of Wall Street. 
and you're there during those formative days. And there must've been some real temptations or draws to keep you there. When you are at a successful financial firm like that, and you're in on the Wall Street crowd, and there's you have the house in the Hamptons, and you have the ski house in Southern Vermont. I mean, the trappings there are pretty significant. It's not often that somebody will break out of that environment and then go and set up shop for a new fund in Africa. Tell us about what that looked like. So I think it was, it could have been a lot tougher, frankly, Henry. If I hadn't had the history that I had, if I had just sort of grown up in a fairly well-to-do family and let's say my parents had paid for me to go to school in the US, I'd gotten into Bridgewater, I think I might have relied a lot more on the trappings of the position around me than I did on what did God think about this? What was the nudge? What was the calling? Why was I here? You know, what was I doing, right? And I think oftentimes we struggle with those two pieces, right? So you know, we pray and we ask God to help us do certain things. And we try to walk by faith. And he puts us in these incredibly privileged positions. And it is very, very difficult to not forget. It's easy to forget once you're in those positions, how you got there, why you're there, and not appreciate the fact that you're only there for a season. You're there to steward certain things, to accomplish certain things. And only in looking back, do you realize that if you keep with those seasons, you will do some phenomenal things. And if you overstay your season in a particular place. It's not like you'll kind of fall off a cliff or anything, but you'll miss out on a bunch of really cool stuff. And when I start to talk about some of the things we're doing in Africa, I mean, they are phenomenal things, right? You know, I've gone from trying to be a good investor, trying to run a good business, be respected in a certain space to affecting millions of people with our investments, literally seeing millions of people's lives change. And I'll talk about examples. So I think what helped me during those times, Henry, is I looked back on the journey and I realized that this journey had very little to do with me and my abilities and everything to do with being guided and being nudged in a particular direction. So when the nudge came, I realized it was time to leave. And so then putting the trappings within that context made it easier than it otherwise would have been, I think, to walk away. Just to give you a practical sense of that, I mean, when I decided to go work for McKenna, I had a 15-minute conversation with Ray Dalio. I basically called him and I said, hey, I want to talk about something. And Ray Dalio and I, which was fortunate for me, had built both a professional relationship and a personal relationship over time, right? And so when I sat down with him, I said, I have this great opportunity to be one of a handful of people that have worked here and can go work for a large global endowment, investing lots of money in all kinds of things, getting great experience. His first reaction was not the typical hedge fund owner. Yeah, the typical hedge fund kind of gets call security. How can you do this to us? We did all these things for you that sort of lead you out of the office, right? He said to me, let's talk about this opportunity. What do you like about it? Do you know these people? Do you trust them? What do you want to do? And then he said, look, if I was your age and this came along, I would absolutely do it. Mm. Now, the question is, how are we going to transition out? You're the first person in your position that is leaving. That's not being fired or not retiring. And... We essentially had a handshake. I said to him, I will leave when we're all good here. That, that's basically the deal. Like nothing written down. I'll just leave when everyone's happy here, right? And that's what I did. And to this day, we've maintained that personal relationship. But I think that all comes back to, again, in my view, the providence of God, the hand of God, the unseen hand of God, guiding, helping, you know, nudging, taking you out of harm's way, right? Sending people your way that are helpful at the right time and so on. 
So you talk about the opportunity to go and do a bunch of cool things. And I have a sense of that because I've seen some of that on the ground and I'm encouraged by it. Help us understand what some of those cool things have been since you've returned to Africa. What are the projects that you're involved in? And see if you just kind of paint this picture. At the outset in the introduction, I mentioned the fact that there's this all this opportunity. Help a listener to this podcast understand what you saw as you moved back to Africa and what you continue to see. Okay. So having grown up in Africa, I think my lens, I went back every single year since I had left to go to high school. Every single year I went back for good chunks of time to visit family and so on. So I was able to maintain a thread, a running thread of observation, you know, notwithstanding the fact that I was mostly out of the country most of the time, right? And I think the first thing that I noted was that it seemed to me that for the first time in Africa's history, the people that stood to gain more from instability than what they lost had diminished relative to those who stood to lose more from instability. So what had happened? Mm. People's incomes had risen. People had gone from, you know, when I grew up in Uganda, when I was five or six or seven, my primary focus was safety, right? It's idiot, I mean, it's volatile, it's chaotic. It's all about safety. Forget electricity. No one's talking about having your vitamins, right? Like that's just a non-issue, right? You're just trying to be safe and alive. And I started to realize that that had changed. As people's incomes rose, you know, they sent their kids to better schools. They wanted to keep their kids in those schools. They started to become more focused on their healthcare and on the things that lots of people on this call now focus on started to become much more important. And for those things to continue, stability was very important. And that became a broad-based theme across most countries that I went to. And that to me was the first real sign that the tide had turned permanently in this geography, right? Like once that happens and people take that into their own hands, then they'll do, they'll do everything to protect that situation. So that was the first observation. I think the second observation was that I was mostly operating in a world where private investments were all about squeezing out the last bit of efficiency. Richard, that's fascinating. When you talk about this framework, and I just hope that you can repeat it, because I think that there's something really there that is going to help a lot of people to think about emerging markets, because there is a group of people that want things to stay the same. And then there's a group of people that want to see change. Yes. And what you want to do as an investor in any type of emerging market, and not all emerging markets are created equally, but you want to go in and you want to look for certain things. And what you had said was, I saw where for the first time, the number of people and the power of people that wanted to see something new and see new opportunity eclipsed that of those who had a vested interest in seeing things stay the same. Yes. And when you saw that dynamic shift, you said, that's where I need to enter. And so as we're thinking about things right now and we're thinking about emerging markets and maybe there are 100 countries or 150 countries that might make that up, that's a great frame. I'm thinking about investing in Venezuela, okay. Are there more people there with power that have a vested interest in keeping things the same? Absolutely. Or are there more people now that are in the marketplace that have a vested interest in seeing progression? That's really interesting. Okay, continue on, please. So look, that was the first thing I observed. The second was that the lens that I had as an African on opportunity and risk needed to be adjusted. And that's me as an African who grew up there, who has family there, who has a network there, who has invested personally there, right? So never mind a listener on this podcast who is not an African, never invested there, never been, right? So the lens really had to shift. How did it have to shift? I had grown up 
primarily investing in developed markets to a less extent emerging markets in Asia, but you know, developed markets, emerging, okay, emerging markets in Asia. And those markets were larger, more efficient, much more organized. And the types of opportunities and the types of risks you have in those markets are very different. So the types of opportunities you have are, can you find someone who has a highly specialized skill who can take a business and make it go a certain direction to squeeze out certain efficiencies? And maybe that gets you a great return and has some impact on the people that that business serves, okay? And if I was to take that mindset into Africa, it would be a disaster because where Africa was, was not there. Where Africa was, was whereas a middle market business, for example, in the US might be growing at eight or 10 or 12% a year, businesses in Africa were generally growing at 20, 30, 40, 50, 100% a year. And when a business is growing that quickly, first of all, it's generally a simple business. There is demand. You know, I remember going to Ethiopia and there was a water beverage business selling bottled water and there were trucks going out the back. And the, the guy was rationing the bottled water. You know, people would come up and he'd say, I'll give you 10 cartons or I'll give you traders, right? I'll give you 15, 30. This is just water in a plastic bottle, right? It's not like something you and I don't think about when we go to a grocery store, right? So those types of businesses, what they needed was capital, good governance, right? So it's probably run by someone and his wife or his cousin, you know, good governance, board structure and so on. Probably help expanding a factory, or help defining the route to market or trying to get them out of things they shouldn't be doing, right? That they've had to do in order to get off the ground and so on. And the impact on returns that you could generate and the impact on the people that it touched was just unprecedented. Like I hadn't seen anything like this. Meaning you could go into market and deliver very interesting returns and you could impact millions of people at the same time without a trade-off between the two. Okay, so that to me was particularly attractive because from where I sat, the trade-off was acute. Mm. You generated lots of returns and it wasn't clear if you had any positive impact on anyone, right? Or you had impact, but it was basically a charitable phenomenon, right? Right. I think that was the second thing that was really attractive. I think the third thing was realizing just how much skill had gone back into Africa. So as I was growing up, Lots of people like me would have left, gone to school abroad, worked abroad, and so on. And as global crisis started to happen, so for example, when the global financial crisis happened, lots of people moved back. People lost their jobs where they were, in New York, whatever, they moved back. And then they realized, gosh, the opportunity is actually quite significant. So the aggregation of skill sets had risen much faster than I anticipated Again, as an African, never mind if I wasn't an African, right? Mm -hmm. So you pull those things together, you've got a shifting mindset, you've got a differentiated opportunity set, and you've got skill sets that are on the ground. And you can do that in a way that delivers return and has impact. I don't know where else in the world at scale where you can do that. But so that for me was the attractive point. You mentioned something in there that's incredibly important, and that's governance. And yeah. governance has got to be a novel concept in some of the markets in which you've invested. Talk to us a little bit about that, because I think that it's probably twofold, right? It's setting up the right governance on the ground and then having some sort of rule of law and court system that can uphold that type of governance. Where yeah. are you seeing that happen? And where are you finding the type of countries that you have confidence in investing, lest there be a problem and there's some amount of rule of law that will enforce the contracts that you put in place? So in Africa, you essentially have three legal systems. There's an English or Anglophone legal system that was driven by the English colonialists, wherever they were. 
there's a French system driven by the French colonialists, and then there's a Portuguese system, legal system. Okay. What we found in general is that the strength of those systems goes English, French, Portuguese. That's the starting point. So if you are operating in a country that had huge English influence, colonial otherwise, the law is generally strong, pretty strong. It is very commercial in intent. It is less personable. It's just, you know, a deal is a deal and kind of that's the law. Yes, people want to connect personally, but the law is the anchor. And the law has been well-tested for decades, just dog years, right? So people have started businesses, lost them, bought, sold, sued the government, the government sued people, all of that's just established. So you're not establishing precedence at all. All you're doing is stepping into an environment where people know and are used to what kind of what you're trying to do, right? Now, there's a handful of countries like, you know, if you're in West Africa, for example, in Ghana or Nigeria, that, that, that is the case. You know, if you're in Southern Africa, in Zambia, that's the case. In South Africa, obviously, that's the case. If you're in East Africa, in Kenya, that's generally the case. So there is a bunch of countries where that's the case. I think the French law is, I would put, you know, not far off from the British law in that sense, which is where you've had a long history of the French. So Francophone West Africa, Côte d'Ivoire, Senegal, pretty well-established law, well-established law firms, judges, the court system, the precedence of legal interpretation and so on and so forth. I think the Portuguese is generally where we would have struggled and we generally stayed away from those countries. So Angola is still challenging. Mozambique is still challenging. You could do a lot of really good things to impact people there, but the legal system is quite challenging, right? And so you have to tread carefully. Now, that's the legal system. But I think the notion of governance, to me, is the legal system is important within that context. But what's much more important is the who, who you do business with. Because as we've seen in many countries, whether investing in Brazil or in Russia or in China, people can figure out ways to get you tied up in the legal system. Right? So the legal system by itself is not sufficient. I mean, even, you know, there are places in the U.S. where you do business and you might just be stuck in court for two years till you give up. Like the legal system doesn't mm -hmm. break, but you break before it breaks, right? Mm -hmm. And what's important, I find, in Africa, but in general, emerging markets is really understanding your counterpart. Are you doing business with people who are just honest? They were honest before you ever met them. They have a track record of being honest. They pursue honesty. Honesty is part of who they are viewed as. They will operate with you in a transparent fashion even after you're gone, right? Mm. And if How do you the diligence asset, that? That's how, I mean, everybody can gather that, of course, you know, can you trust a person or not? Yes. But you have to be able to diligence that. What does that look like for you? When you're investing, you've got an entrepreneurial business leader, it yep. looks, you know, a great opportunity, and yet you've got to trust them. How do you figure out whether it's somebody you can trust? It is lots of hours mm. talking to people in your network locally. It's lots of hours talking to people in person about someone else, watching their mm -hmm. body language when they respond. There are certain countries, for example, where people just don't like to talk about bad things culturally. And so if you call them <laughs> on a Zoom call, you might not, unless you can really read their body language well on a Zoom call, you might not get the sense that you might think what they're saying is actually true, which is true, but they're just kind of, they're just nervous about the situation, nervous about a person. So I think we do a lot of kind of 360 degree cross-referencing. You know, it's not just talking to the people you're trying to do business with. It's talking to their competitors. It's talking to people they've done business with in the regulatory authorities, in government. It's talking to lawyers who do business in those countries. Mm -hmm. It's talking to auditors and accountants. But it's also, I mean, we've done things like several years ago, we diligenced a fund that had a lot of self-professed Christians in it. So I flew out to this country and I went to 
two of their churches unannounced. I just attended the church and I asked about them. Yeah. Hey, you know this person, right? Yeah. And they were shocked that I was there. I mean, like they figured out I was in the church, right? When I was in the church, like all of a sudden. So you, you can't really defend against that, right? The person's there, they're attending a church service. There's nothing wrong with that. But I got a much better sense talking to different people, just getting a sense for who the person is than I would have just getting someone to run a kind of a back office due diligence operation in the background, right? And so that really needs you to either be local or have a very strong, trusted local partner. There's just no way around that. Yeah. You know, I've heard of a new initiative that's going on in Kenya that's really encouraging, I think. And it's effectively a group of business leaders and political leaders that are all part of a group where somebody is thinking about doing a deal with somebody and they email the group with the yeah. person's name and it comes back red light, yellow light, green light. Hmm. And that's it. So you don't have to go ahead and uh, it's anonymous. Yeah. And it's done through a central administrator. So you go ahead and say, you know, this is coming in from one of our members, John Jones, red light, yellow light, green light. The answer red light, yellow light, green light goes back to John Jones. Yeah. And then he keeps that confidential. And then he says, okay, well, we get an 87% green, this percent yellow, this percent red. A couple of people said volunteered. I've got some more color on this. You can give me a call. And I thought that was really an interesting thing. You know, I've been fascinated for years about microfinance and the power mm -hmm. of social collateral that results in much higher repayment rates than you might expect. 98, 99% yeah. all throughout Africa through microfinance. And it's the power of social collateral yeah. and the power of relationship and and wanting to avoid shame. That yeah. seems that that might even apply in the business world as well. Do you see that type of system as being something that gives you promise and hope amidst this reputation of some level of corruption? So I think that anything like that is an improvement, but there is a challenge, which is a very nuanced challenge. The challenge is the following. Most countries that you would want to do business in in Africa are very siloed into either tribal groupings or you know, certain groupings of clusters. So for example, if you're in Nigeria, you're Yoruba, you're Igbo, you're this, you're that, and the trust circles within those units are very strong. Mm. And the understanding of what someone says within that unit and the interpretation of it is not linear English interpretation, right? There's a cultural context around that. And if you're in Nairobi, you know, you've got different clusters. You've got for example, within the Indian business community, there are several clusters and the way in which you would interpret what they say about someone in that community is not the same. Mm. And so we obviously haven't progressed to a point where that interpretation kind of through AI makes sense, right? And so it's critically important to be able to say, okay, when, when someone in Ghana hesitates to talk about something, something bad is going on because culturally that's how people are trained. Mm. They just hesitate to talk about bad things. They will delay and they will soften the blow and all that, right? But in Nigeria, they will tell you that to your face immediately, right? Right next door. And so, so I think that's important. Now, mm. I do think though that if you're doing your, I mean, we've, we've done this now for close to a decade. We haven't had problems like this in our portfolio companies. We have tons, we have over hundred portfolio companies. We invest through funds and we invest directly. So it's not just because we are the direct investor in a portfolio company. It's we invest through funds who are investing in companies as well, right? And so how is it that that's the case? I think it's because we spend a tremendous amount of time making sure that the people we partner with and the people they partner with are high integrity people. And if you do that, I think you'll make a lot of headway. Okay, I want to ask you another question 
that I think a lot of people are wondering in the back of their mind, and that is currency. Yeah. And so I get the macro picture about why to invest in Africa. I understand how to go about doing it. I understand more about governance and rule of law, how you go about trusting, establishing trust. What does it look like if you make an investment and you've got currency devaluation? How do you think about that? How do your Western investors think about that? First of all, I think our Western investors don't really have clarity on that necessarily before we have the conversation. Because most private equity investors don't have clarity on that. They want to buy a good business with a good management team and grow the thing. And mm -hmm. hope the team kind of fixes the currency problem, right? If it does occur. What we say to investors is, we're in an emerging market, sometimes frontier market. You should expect that there will be volatility, currency or otherwise. Like the very notion that an economy grows at 10 or 15% a year implies volatility. It has to. Right? Like, you know, other economies are growing at 1% a year, right? Yep. So what you have to do is you have to expect it. You have to do your best to underwrite it into what you're doing. You have to try to buy businesses that are resilient to it and build portfolios that are resilient to it. So we walk in eyes wide open and we say, we just assume there will be currency depreciation across all the countries we operate in or currency volatility. When we underwrite a fund team or a deal on investment, we basically say, okay, this is a South African investment. What's going on with South African currency for the last 30 years? Here's what, what's happening. What are the pressures now? So having a macro view of the country you are in is actually much more important than it is in a developed market. In a developed market, you have a macro ecosystem that's fairly established that does some of that work for you. In an emerging market, you do have to have a macro view that says, I want to be in South Africa. I've thought about that, and then I'm going to go look for businesses or funds that operate there, okay? What we've seen is if you take, for example, our first fund, we started investing that fund at the beginning of what was the third most aggressive period of U.S. dollar strength in the last 50 years. And my context on this is, you know, when I was at McKenna, I ran a big currency book for McKenna. So I've been in and around currencies, like a good chunk of my life, Bridgewater House currencies. Mm -hmm. And so... We watched our portfolio respond to this theoretical construct that if you went in expecting volatility, you underwrote it, um, and you built a portfolio that had some resilience, that you're going to be okay, and it has turned out okay. So what's happened is the companies that are growing at 40% a year, probably in local currency, probably ended up growing at 25% a year, because 15% was currency taken out. Well, if they grow at 25% a year for five or six years, they'll give you a three to three and a half X on just growth alone, without any other bells and whistles, right? Mm -hmm. And so what that's done for us, and what I would say to the investors that are on the call, let's say thinking about emerging markets in general and thinking about the currency question is, buy growth, because growth will make up for a lot of errors, currency mm -hmm. or otherwise. Buy really good management teams that have lived through real challenges because they know how to, you know, if you talk to companies that were operating during the Arab Spring in Egypt, they figured out how to pay their people when it was unsafe, how to manage around currency situations, how to manage around safety issues. So all day long, we want to back people like that because they will improvise where no solution exists ahead of time, right? And I think if you do that and you build a diversified portfolio, which is the third piece of this, yeah. then you're okay. Then you'll be fine. I also think it's worth mentioning that even in a country like South Africa, you look at the RAND, it's been relatively flat. There's been some volatility against US dollar, but we're not talking yeah. about massive depreciations. It's a very, very yeah. rare event when you yeah. see something in Zimbabwe or Venezuela. So Correct. I want to make sure that we don't overstate that. And I think you've answered it really well. I want to shift back to the fund a little bit. And um, I want to ask, 
Well, I really would love to get a story about a company that you've invested in that you're most excited about. But before we do that, I actually want to shift into the theme, of course, that's always pervasive in our segments, which is faith. And you talked a bit about the beginning about how faith and God's plan has made such an impact in your life. But I know about your partner. I know about how you think about things. Share how your faith (laughs) impacts how you invest. So I think, I mean, we were believers in Jesus before we were ever business partners or frankly, employees, right? So we were fortunate in the sense that we did not have to fix a bunch of errors before that happened, right? You know, so some people do the second thing and then they got to do the first thing and they have to go back and kind of fix a bunch of errors. So we're fortunate in that regard. I think the way in which we view this is we feel called to do what we've been called to do, which is A, to be really good stewards of the capital that's been entrusted to us by investors who have most of the time never been to this geography. Mm-hmm. And we are called that sort of the respect, the work, the focus that it requires. And I can come back to that. But we also feel that we have been called to steward other things that are much softer. So we're both family people. You know, I've got a wife of 19 years, two boys. My partner's got a wife of kind of similarly 20 years, 21 years now with three kids. So what we do as husbands and what we do as fathers is going to be far more important than what we do as investors. Now, don't get me wrong. We have to do a phenomenal job as investors, but the bar is really, really high on the other stuff, right? Because yeah. when our kids go out in the world, as you know, like we hope we've done a good job when they go out in the world, right? Because then they can impact other people in a way that perhaps that we can't, okay? We're also stewards of our employees, right? Their families, how they see us operate, how they see God infused in our business. So to give a little more color to this too, your partner was a pastor, correct? He is a pastor. He's an elder at his church. He, you know, he preaches a sermon, I'd say, probably once or twice a month. And so we, how God affects us can't just be a thing we talk about or a label, right? Because there are so many of those labels or things people talk about that lead people in the wrong direction. I think people need to see how we operate when we have to let someone go. Mm-hmm how we operate in crisis when we got into COVID. How did we operate in COVID? So if we believe in this God that's supposed to be in charge and we're in this situation that where no one seems to know what's going on, are we all panicked and have we lost track of what's going on? In which case, then how are we different than someone who doesn't? Right? So I think like taking the notion of stewardship in a 360 degree fashion, you know, the people we partner with, the fund managers we partner with, the companies we partner with, how we view the way in which those funds or companies affect their communities, right? Yep. All of that comes into this kind of single time of stewardship. So I think to me, our work, what we try to do is as much as possible, stay as close to God as we can, without which we couldn't possibly be half decent stewards of all this stuff. Mm. And we feel like if we do that, and we can be, I won't even say phenomenal stewards, but just half decent stewards, guided by him, then I think we'll be okay. Right? Yeah. And so that's how we think about that. Okay, so that's the bigger picture. And I love it first. I mean, it's the ordering is so important. Matthew 6.33, aim first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be given to you as well. And so you're talking about an ordering. Let's make sure we've got a right relationship with God. Let's make sure we focus on our family. Let's provide the right culture for our employees. And so then that then continues. And what I'd love for you to do is, is we talk about an individual investment. Yeah. How does that faith actually manifest itself? Now, clearly, 
Your faith provides a foundation that allows for all these things to happen. It allows for a culture of excellence within your staff and your analysts. Yep. It provides for a culture of excellence and how you think about diligence and discovery and showing up to people's churches and understanding more about their character. What does it look like when it actually meets the ground in an investment? Maybe you've got a story or something like that. You can say, okay, this company did this, and this is how our faith helped us make the decision or how we've managed the investment. Give us an example, please. Okay. So I'll give an example in the grocery retail space. Mm-hmm. You know, so the first recorded organized grocery business in the U.S. was, I think, around 1915. It's a business called Piggly Wiggly in Tennessee. Okay. Mm-hmm. Tiny little business. At that point, the population of the U.S. was about 100 million people. The largest U.S. city, I think New York City, was 5 million people. So let's fast forward to 2015. Okay. 1915, 20, 100 years later. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let's zoom in on... Nigeria, 200 million people, twice the population of the U.S. at the time. Okay, Largest city in Nigeria, Lagos, 20 million people, give or take. Four times the size of the largest city in the U.S. Largest grocery store at the time in 2015, 15 stores. Wow. 15 stores, one five. So like anyone on this call that's in a developed market or, you know, bigger country, Brazil, China, Brazil in 2015, the largest store was 2,200 stores. Brazil has 20 million people just like Nigeria. So therein lay the opportunity and the challenge because the behavior of the people in this, let's say Brazil versus Nigeria, is not that different. They go to work, they work hard, they have less and less time. They want to be able to go to the grocery store that's organized, get what they want, find it at a good price, know that it's fresh and reliable, go home to their families. It's a very simple request, right? It's not a very complicated request. Okay, so, so in 2015, after doing a bunch of work, we decided that we wanted to do more in this sector and we found an entrepreneur that had built a successful fast food business and who was building a closet grocery business. I close it in quotes because people were coming into his fast food restaurants at lunchtime, buying their food, their fast food, and then basically asking for milk, tomatoes, and they like, they use this stuff anyway to do our food. Why don't you just sell it to us, like on the side? Like have a refrigerator, I'll buy it. And so he said to us, I got to tell you guys, this is a much bigger opportunity than the fast food. We were attracted to him because of the fast food restaurant. And he said to us, no, forget the fast food restaurant. The grocery business is billions of dollars worth of opportunity. Unmet, okay? So, you know, we're skeptical. So for a period of two years, starting from about 2013 towards 2015, we spent time with this guy, getting to know him, visiting his businesses, taking him to Kenya to show him how this is done in Kenya, to Uganda, on our dime, right? It's like we say, hey, why don't you come spend the weekend with us? We'll show you around, whatever. Bring him to South Africa where you have proper institutionalized grocery, you know, thousands and thousands of stores, people running back hole, you know, super efficient, right? Yeah. Kind of open his eyes, get to know him and so on. Now, Eventually, we get to a point where he says, hey, we need to do something. This is like enough talking already. Let's do something. We say to him, okay, now this is a startup. And because it's a startup, we got to get some sort of security. It's a startup in Nigeria, essentially. Yeah, yeah of course, we're going to move your crowd into a shop over here, but it's a startup. So we say to him, we want to take a backing equity position in your fast food business. So if this thing doesn't pan out, you know, we got to have some protection. That's the first real test of someone's conviction and their integrity, all of that in real time, right? So he says, okay, I'll give you a backing position that will make you a 25% IRR in my existing business with 35 stores if this thing doesn't pan out. 
Then we get into the work. All the work you have to do around the new investment, all the legals and all the groundwork, all the market research and all the rest of it. We finally get to a position of decision and a couple of things I think happened. One is we got to know that he, I wouldn't describe him as a believer in Jesus necessarily, but he was a super high integrity person. Mm-hmm. Much more high integrity than lots of believers, actually, in our mm-hmm. view, just that we knew in his space. Yeah, yeah. But he was also a very tough, he's had to be a tough person to build a business that he has. And you need someone like that in that industry. So we had to decide, could we deal with his toughness, knowing his integrity or not, okay? So some of that for us really comes to, you know, we go back to our closets and we consult and we say, like, how do I feel about this? Do I have a nudge that's positive or negative? We've done all the work. The memo says we should do it. The teams agree we should do it. The demand is there. People want it. People are already buying stuff. That's all done now, but should we do it? Is this the right thing? Okay. We both come out, Charles and I, and we're like, okay. When you say, hold on a second. When you say you go to your closets, is that code for prayer? So I wouldn't call it code for prayer, but we pray. And then we say, how do we feel about this? Is there a hesitancy? Right? It's not like you hear a loud voice from somewhere that says, oh, absolutely do it. Right? Yeah, as we know, right? that's not how it works. But do we have a hesitancy? Do we have a check? Because in this particular case, we have a very strong personality. We're going to partner with him. We're going to be 50-50 partners in a country that's not South Africa. We're not there physically every day. Should we do it? So at that point, we are always well advised to check here and say, how do we feel about this? What's the gut? What's the nudge? What's the leading? What do we feel about it? We pray. What do we feel? What do we feel back? And that's important. Now, that doesn't happen on every single transaction. Because there are certain transactions where you have that sense right through the process as you go through it, okay? And you're fine. And you just run through the process and you're done. In this case, we're, you know, arming and knowing. And I remember one weekend having a conversation with Charles where we needed to make the call by Monday. And we're just like, let's sleep on it. Let's see how we feel. Let's pray. Let's see how we feel on Monday. All the backing information is there. Everything says we should do it, but let's just make sure, okay? That was 2015, we are in the process of selling that business now. It will be about somewhere between 17 and 20 stores this year. Mm-hmm. What has happened in Nigeria during that time frame? The currency has lost 60% of its value. There have been two elections. There's been one recession. That entire time, the business has been open. The stores have been open. They have put stuff on the shelves. You know, when COVID happened and the governors of the different states wanted to start shutting down public congregation points, the public got out to the store and they say to the governors, you cannot shut this store down. People just stood outside. They're like, you have to keep it open. It's our lifeline, right? Now, commercially, we think this is a business that based on the bids we're getting now will make us five times money. Notwithstanding all that noise on the currency and the this and that, Right. Mm-hmm. But it's also a business that if you think carefully about what happens when people organize grocery retail, it starts to change their behavior. They can get home to their kids and help them with homework because they don't have to be stuck in traffic trying to go to market two hours away to get food, yeah. just to get basic, right? So, so it's an so extension th- of what you see in agricultural communities where having to walk for an hour or two to get water yeah. is a challenge. And yeah. the urban equivalent of that is having to go far to get food. To get food. And, you know, most people, Africa is urbanizing faster than any other geography today in the world and will be for the next 30 years, right? So this problem and this opportunity will get more and more acute. So that's, I think, one example where how our faith weaves into a business, the type of work we do, a simple sector that people understand, 
all the way through to exit and commercial return and also just sheer impact. You know, it employs hundreds of people, right? It's a business that has just done a five-year plan to go from their current size to about 50 stores. You know, this could be 200 stores, right? So hopefully that gives your listeners a sense for a business where you can kind of do both and, you know, kind of deepen it. That's very good. We'd like to end every podcast with this question we ask of all our guests, which is, what are you hearing from God through his word? And maybe it's something in the Bible that you read this morning that struck you. Maybe it's something last week, maybe something in this season, but what's something that you're learning from his word? So I think for me right now, I would go back to John 15, where it says, abide in me and I in you. Mm. You know, you read that portion of the Bible and, and it's such a simple thing, right? It's like not even 10 words, such a simple thing. So incredibly difficult to abide continuously, right? Yeah. And I think what I'm realizing as I spend time around this, listen to other people talk about this and so on, is that a lot of the times we have taken this notion of God and made it this big thing. God's out here, this big guy. You call him when you've got problems. You know, you treat him in a certain way. You kind of, you know, you're like, hey, just stay over there. Like, when I need you, like, come help me. You're kind of like this, you're my problem concierge, right? Whereas what that really speaks to, I think, is, is someone that's right here. It's almost like you've got a parrot, like a pet parrot that sits right here that talks to you all the time, that listens to you all the time. And you talk about stuff. So, you know, I got up this morning, really tired, decided to go for a swim. On the drive down to the pool, I started, I was like, I'm really tired. I have this FDI thing I got to do later on today. I honestly don't know what you you want me to say, right? I don't know what you want me to say, but I need you to help me. I don't know if, should I swim? I don't know. I, I, I feel like I need to swim. Like that's the conversation, like in the car, right? And it's amazing to me. I'm discovering, I've just started to discover how powerful and how different of a trajectory you can have when you operate that way. How your life just starts to change, how things change in real time, right? So that for me is, that's my current kind of focal point. So you're suggesting that you can abide in God while even under the water. You can abide in God on this call, listening to this call, your kid runs in the room, throws something at the screen, you know, on and on and on. And he actually wants that. Yeah. That's the key, right? It's not just, we're not forcing it on. He actually wants that. We most of the time are keeping him away from that and ourselves from that, which is like what we shouldn't be doing, right? Amen. Amen. That's an awesome word to end on. I'm just very, very grateful for you, Richard. Thank you for your friendship, your partnership in the movement. May God bless you and your fund and your investments and uh, very much looking forward to the next time. Thank you. Henry, thank you very much for having me. It's been fun and look forward to the conference. We are grateful for the opportunity to serve this community and see listeners come in from more than 100 countries. Faith-driven investing can be a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. The best way to stay connected is to join a group study with other investors looking to get the same answers to the questions you have and find great community as they do so. There's no cost, no catch. In person or online, you can meet an hour a week with other peers from your backyard or the other side of the world. You can also stay connected by signing up for our monthly newsletter at faithdriveninvesting.org. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of many of our friends. Executive producer, Justin Foreman. Intro mixed and arranged by Summer Dregs. Audio and editing by Richard Barley. Our theme song is Sweet Ever After by Ellie Holcomb. 